welcome to the World Stage podcast. My name is Tora Bergen-Aterstad and I'll be talking to Henry Hale, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at the George Washington University, about values and regime legitimacy in, in Russia. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. We know each other through the project Legitrus on values-based regime legitimation in authoritarian states, specifically Russia. And, and a central dimension of what we examine is whether a turn towards traditional values in the Putin regime that is commonly understood to have happened around Putin's return to the presidency in, in 2012, whether this, this resonates in the public or not. But before we delve deeper into that, I think we have to start with the the basics of what do we talk about when we talk about Putin's traditionalist turn? Yes, so um, the conservative turn, as it's sometimes called, dates back to the end of 2011 when there was a massive protest that took place in Russia after the Kremlin tried to falsify certain um, election returns after its popularity had been flagging. People didn't like the fact that Putin was returning to the presidency after a, a period during which Medvedev had served that office while Putin was prime minister. Um, you got big protests breaking out. And one of the ways in which the regime tried to regain support was to turn towards uh, what we would call conservative, traditional, illiberal values. Um, in the past, Putin hadn't tried to do that much. He had generally avoided issues that might divide the population, um, issues like uh, LGBTQ plus rights, um, issues touching on non-traditional sexuality, as uh, the Russians would call it. Um, even re issues related to religion uh, and uh, church-state relations had not been greatly politicized by Putin. But um, after these protests broke out, they needed a new way to try and uh, reconnect with parts of the population. And so they figured that, well, the people protesting are mostly in the uh, globalized cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg. These are kind of associated with a West that can be described as um, depraved, morally corrupt. So maybe it would be a good idea, they thought, to um, start um, playing on these values that many Russians, especially in the countryside, outside the big city, uh, share. And so maybe this would be a new way to reconnect those people with Putin um, since they had already effectively lost the big cities anyway. And the hope was that this would be a majority of the population and a good way for Putin to rebuild his political authority. So, um, but just just very, you know, simple in, in general terms, um, how do you theoretically understand the, the relationship between, you know, values or conservatism and legitimacy? Ah, um, so, Basically, uh, all regimes need to have some form of legitimacy. Political scientists, others dis uh, d uh, disagree on what you know how exactly legitimacy is defined, but basically, it's a public acceptance of their right to rule, and uh, it usually implies some form of public support. And that support can be grounded in many things. It can be grounded in 
um, performance, how well the economy performs at a, at a given time, for example. Um, but another way that's very common is to uh, ground the authority in, in kind of ideas of what's traditional or conservative. So if we go back to um, you know, hundreds of years ago, right? Like lots of regimes, monarchies were considered to have the divine right to rule. So their legitimacy was explicitly based on very traditional conservative values that uh, you know equated in many cases religion with the state. So today, um, Putin doesn't go that far. Uh, he doesn't claim to be uh, God's anointed, um, at least uh, explicitly. Uh, but uh, he can hope to form a, a connection with the people about his rule and uh, acceptance of his rule to the extent that uh, he portrays himself as a defender of these values, uh, you know, including religiosity and, and traditional forms of marriage, traditional sexual relations, uh, at least as he defines it. So the, the, I guess the, what your people would call the million-dollar question uh, is, is, does it work? Right. Yes. So in the Legitrus project, we are investigating whether it works in terms of constructing a logic that rationalizes Kremlin policy and, and where it comes from and how it's it's dispersed. But do people buy into it? So I guess, you know, it's two separate questions there, right? Are How traditionalist are Russians? And does Putin's turn toward, towards uh, tradition increase the popular acceptance of, of the regime. Yeah, and I think that's where, to me, it gets very interesting um, because even though Putin has undertaken this conservative turn, in reality, the population in Russia is fairly divided. Um, you can find a significant portion of the population that adheres pretty consistently to uh, traditional values, um, close church-state relationships, intolerance towards people who are not uh, heterosexual or in other kinds of relationships. Um, but um, the share of people who are across the board conservative in that sense uh, is not a majority, um, or at least it's, it's maybe at best about a, major, about a half. And so population is actually divided on those issues. However, there are certain issues, especially uh, intolerance towards um, non-traditional sexual relations, to, uh, intolerance of sexual um, uh, diversity. Uh, you know that has broad support across the population. And so the question then uh, that uh, we wanted to address uh, in this survey, or at least that that I'm tasked with addressing, is uh, you know to what extent. Do the people who share those conservative values tend to support Putin? And um, do they support him partly because of those values? Do they see him as someone who actually is a defender of these values? And does he reap uh, support for it? So um, it's a tricky question to uh, research. But one way to start out is just to see, OK, well, um, in the survey data, are those people who have conservative values, are they also Putin supporters? And overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. So um, I analyzed 13 different indicators of conservative positions in the, neo, uh, the legit Rus survey and found that um, the people who, if you, uh, the people who were conservative on all 13 of those issues were over 70% more likely to say they would vote for Putin then were people who responded with the most secular liberal positions on those same issues. So that suggests a very strong correlation between support for Putin 
and uh, the conservative values. Um, but there's still questions that remain uh, because we don't know whether or not this correlation reflects cause. So do people support who are conservative support Putin um, because they hold these values and they think he does? Do they support him for some other reason? Um, or uh, you know, maybe there's something else going on. And so um, the, the survey employed a, um, a kind of experiment which involves using randomization in the survey to try and uh, basically expose different subsamples in the survey, different sets of people in the survey to different wordings of the same question uh, to see if um, there are differences. And so basically what we did was to ask some randomly selected survey respondents to first reflect upon what Putin says on issues related to religion and what Putin says about gender. And it turns out that after reflecting on what Putin says about gender and what Putin says about religion, um, this does not make people on the whole more likely to support Putin as you think it would if people had these issues in mind and if it was a source of support for him, it should lead them to say, to be more likely to say they support Putin, but they don't. But then what we can do is we can break that down a little farther. Um, and what we find is um, that uh, there are some important effects among people who uh, have different prior positions on these issues. And so um, among the religious, for example, we find that people who um, reflect on what Putin says about religion, um, among the religious, this doesn't really have anything, uh, any, any effect on their support for Putin. But if you are a secular person and you reflect on what Putin says about religion, you become less supportive. So I think this is an example of where the correlation that we see between a stronger support for Putin and um, more conservative positions might actually reflect the secular population moving away from Putin when they hear him talk about these issues rather than him actually attracting more people on the basis of these issues. So what you're saying is it, it doesn't work. Yes, I, I think it, it doesn't work if the goal of if the goal Putin has in mind is to increase his support, where you might say it could work is if what Putin is trying to do is actually to divide the population in some way. And if we go back to the conservative turn, that really was partly what he was trying to do, was trying to cleave the population in two um, and specifically alienate the uh, more liberal secular population from the more conservative traditional rural-based population um, tarnished because the, the, the secular uh, population were the ones that were protesting and he figured he had lost them anyway. So what he wanted to do is sort of uh, create a wall between them and the rest of the population that then could be preserved as his supporters. So I think at that time, he didn't necessarily want to win their new support, but at least to preserve the support that they had been providing for him. Um, the question though is, now is he in that same position? Because a lot's happened since the conservative turn. Um, you had Russia taking over Crimea in 2014. And that basically overwhelmed the conservative turn because suddenly people were so 
uh, happy on the whole about the annexation of Crimea, that um, he didn't need to rely on conservative issues. Um, and if when he did talk about them, uh, even the secular people would forgive him because they were so happy that uh, his leadership had been so effective as to bring Crimea back. Um, but I think now the, the question is, um, do these issues rally support for him or not, especially, <clears throat> especially in the context of the war uh, with Ukraine, now that he's invaded Ukraine? And I think the finding there is that um, the issues are probably more a source of tension for him than a source of, uh, of strength. I think we, we, we have to return to the war later in the podcast, but, but I think you bring up something that, that is, it can both be, you know, concerning, maybe, maybe the opposite, I don't know, but, but what happens in a regime like, like Putin's when legitimation doesn't work? Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think um, even though Russia's regime is authoritarian and has been for some time, it still depends on some form of popular consent to survive. And consent in the political context doesn't necessarily mean active support. It can also mean a decision or the lack of a decision uh, to protest, a decision not to protest. And so um, that is where uh, legitimacy is necessary, because if the legitimacy uh, falls away, then the regime can still survive through force, but it becomes, it becomes much more fragile. Because then um, at a certain point, um, there's always the risk that um, a spark could catalyze some kind of massive protest. And members of uh, the regime's repressive apparatus themselves, if they understand that the people are not with the regime, and if they think that, well, there's a good chance that the people might eventually succeed, they're going to think twice about following orders to crack down and repress. So in a lot of religious, uh, 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 in a lot of um, popular protest situations, uh, revolutionary situations, um, the deciding factor is often the defection of the security forces uh, and the military to the other side, partly because they don't want to be on the wrong side of, the, of, of a divide between the people and the regime if they are convinced that the regime is, is going to go away. Um, so I think uh, a regime that loses legitimacy can survive for some time, um, but it becomes very, very vulnerable. And uh, as we know, this is one of the things I think that uh, Putin and his cronies in the Kremlin fear most as a, as a popular uprising and, and revolution. So they do pay attention to uh, legitimacy and they, they want to keep it. So I think they're very concerned not to lose it. You already touched on the war, and I think we can't really make a podcast now about Russian politics without without talking about that. And the war is, is of course, uh, an extremely dramatic rupture in in Russian politics. But just looking at at uh, legitimation and legitimacy, I wonder if we also see some continuities. I mean, I think we both agree that there's some research that needs to be done before we conclude solidly on this, but. Um, but you have some thoughts about whether the conservative or traditionalist turn has in any way, you know, prepared the ground for the regime's narratives around the war. For example, I mean, retrospectiveness comes to mind. Also, the role of the West. 
Yeah, great question. Um, in short, my interpretation is that this is a rupture that is framed as continuity. And absolutely, the uh, narratives put forth by the Kremlin, its discourse, the framing of events that it's put forth ever since the conservative turn have been an important part of how the Kremlin has uh, framed all of this as continuity. Um, so with the conservative turn um, also came a, an increase in the sort of anti-Western direction of Russian foreign policy because, because the conservative turn also meant demonizing the protesters, tarring them with the brush of corrupt Westerners, liberals who had lost their, um, their moral grounding. Um, that discourse by no means directly leads to a decision to invade a neighboring country. Definitely. Um, but it can be spun in ways that can justify it. And what the Kremlin has done effectively is to... Um, starting with the conservative turn, uh, at least in this form of discourse, but I, I shouldn't really say it started then because it has its roots even, even further, but the conservative turn involved a, a real doubling down on the discourse of Western threat. Um, and what it added was a sense of cultural threat to the traditional threat uh, of kind of NATO as a military alliance expanding into Russia's realm of interest. So it, it introduced the idea of cultural threat to the issue of, of general geopolitical, military, strategic threat, um, and economic threat. I mean, long, it's long been believed in Russia ever since the 1990s. You could find majorities thinking that Western advice provided to Russia in the 1990s was meant to weaken Russia's economy um, because the West didn't want a competitor to Russia. So the conservative turn adds a cultural dimension to this, which um, becomes uh, useful to the Kremlin when it decides to invade, or you know, maybe not even the Kremlin, maybe that's even the wrong word, when Putin decides, um, maybe with only a handful of other advisors, uh, maybe drawing on the thinking of certain people within his uh, regime. Um, because now a whole range of justifications can be uh, uh, spelled out for why the invasion was necessary. And uh, one of the reasons is the narrative that um, there's an aggressive West. It's trying to push its cultural values. One of the ways in which it's doing that is to install what the Kremlin has ridiculously called a uh, Nazi junta in Kiev, even though there's a, a Jewish president there now, it's still a Nazi junta. Um, and that this is all part of the uh, depraved Western aggression. And so the invasion was necessary because the West was ready to take the next step. And on Russian television, you could find all kinds of justifications given as to why the threat was imminent. I mean, everything from, I mean, literally, uh, the West, in the United States in particular, developing bioweapons tailored to the Russian genome that would be spread from southern Ukraine by birds migrating into Russia proper to uh, wipe out Russians, um, to the idea that maybe Ukraine would use nuclear weapons, to the idea that Ukraine was finally going to commit quote-unquote genocide in the areas of eastern Ukraine that, that Russia and its uh, forces had already uh, occupied. And this aggression could be presented as part of this all-out economic military, strategic, and cultural aggression 
uh, against the West. And so the, the conservative elements in this conservative turn proved to be useful in helping to justify the need to defend Russia. Um, you know, the question that I'm raising, of course, is whether or not that element of the story really helps the Kremlin uh, with exactly. the Russian public. I mean, because if you then move from legitimation to legitimacy again, do we know anything about how the war resonates in Russian society? I mean, does it have any popular legitimacy? Yeah, that is the uh, million-dollar question, <laughs> or another million-dollar question, as you put it. Um, well, what we know is that there are opinion polls that show that majorities support the war. Um, there have been some clever uh, experimental techniques used using some of the same kind of randomization procedures that I mentioned earlier um, to see whether this support is real. Um, there's some dissembling in the opinion polls, meaning people aren't really telling the truth necessarily when they say they support Putin, but the majority actually do seem to support Putin. The majority actually do seem to support um, the war. Um, but at the same time, we have to interpret polls like we always do in context. And in this context, the people who are being asked these questions are not being asked, do you support an invasion of Ukraine? They're being asked, do you support what Putin called the special military operation uh, in Ukraine? Um, and uh, support can mean lots of different things to different people. Some people might have opposed the invasion, but think that, well, now that there's a war, these are Russians that are dying, Russian kids, so we have to support them. We have to support our troops. I mean, they all boil down to some form of actual support, which helps the regime, but there are differences in how people think about it in their, in their own right. And so um, we don't know, uh, at least I haven't seen the kinds of survey questions or systematic research that would let me kind of have a confident opinion about whether or not the conservative traditional values element of the legitimation strategy is working, right? Is this action legitimate from that point of view? Um, my guess is that it's probably not from that point of view. Um, I, I don't think that people are, are supporting the invasion primarily because they adhere to, uh, you know, at least many people because they adhere to kind of conservative values that are threatening Russia. My guess is that they, the people that support the invasion and believe in the Russian narrative are probably more threatened by um, what they are told is uh, Russian or Western attempts to weaken Russia's economy, to keep Russia down, um, you know, maybe to threaten it. But um, I wouldn't rule out that there are some people for whom that the cultural dimension matters. Uh, you know, probably not a majority is what I'm getting at, but I think there probably are people for whom this this plays. Um, but at the same time, I think there are people who it alienates um, and that it may be alienating more people than it uh, uh, brings to the regime's position. Um, but at the same time, uh, by alienating, I don't mean that it's leading anyone right now to say openly that they oppose the regime, you know, at least people who didn't say that earlier. I think this these are maybe fissures in society that might come under much more strain and might become much more visible um, much later on as the costs of the war become more evident. I think we'll, we'll end on a more, on a sensationalist <laughs> note. Um, I think uh, when many of our listeners hear your name, they will think of, of your theorizing of regime dynamics and, uh, you know, regime stability and instability and survival. And so it would be bad journalism of me to... <laughs> 
to not ask you the question that those of us working on on Russia are asked uh, all the time these days. So what do you see in the future for Putin's regime? Well, um, at the outset of the war, uh, what I said was that I expected a rally around the flag effect uh, because that's very common in wars. And I think we did see that, but that later on we would start to see you know, possibly the emergence of tensions, um, that probably genuine enthusiasm for what was going on and genuine enthusiasm for the leader um, when people are wrapped up in the emotion of the moment and the intense propaganda campaign will be gradually replaced by a kind of more banal, less intense um, a form of, of support um, that may become something like support in, in name only. And in the context of war, where the regime is very intent on protecting its position, uh, repression has been greatly ramped up. It's illegal to call what's going on now in Russia a war. So you could be actually prosecuted for questioning uh, the regime's narrative. Um, it's going to take some time for, uh, I think, the and any you know kind of banalization of support for the war to really. Uh, sink in. But I guess what I would expect is that over time, uh, especially when you know Russia right now is is seeking to increase the size of its its military, uh, which indicates that it may be preparing for a longer war, um, that also means more and more soldiers are going to come back in body bags or just not come back at all. Um, and that will be noticed by uh, the population. Um, as will economic problems uh, as sanctions kick in, uh, you know, if indeed they do, as, as a lot of uh, analysts have expected, that they, they eventually will. And um, I think if that happens, the regimes become very vulnerable because regimes can stand for a long time without a lot of legitimacy, um, but they also become very vulnerable to almost random events. And random events are, by definition, hard to predict. You can't predict when they're going to happen, but when they happen, um, the downfall and the end can come very quickly. So I think about the Arab Spring, for example. Um, you had these pretty decrepit regimes led by aging leaders. They were autocrats, didn't have much public support, highly corrupt, um, been in power for years. Um, then suddenly one fruit vendor decides to set himself on fire uh, in Tunisia and um, Suddenly, this for some reason strikes a nerve, and uh, you know, cascading numbers of people turn out into the streets. And before you know it, there are regimes falling uh, like flies, or at least getting into crisis. And several of, of these long-lived regimes just collapsed when nobody had predicted it. And so, I think that's what uh, may be ahead for the Kremlin, in that um, maybe it can survive for a while, um, but on the other hand, the end can come much more quickly than uh, would normally seem possible uh, when you have a situation like this. Um, you know, it may be the case that uh, the 2024 elections, which are coming up, could become a point of tension. Even though elections aren't free and fair in Russia, there's still a point at which people are naturally invited to question their leadership, or at least they're asked to affirm it. But by implication, they're also given the implicit invitation to Consider the possibility without that president. And those moments, even if the elections themselves are going to be sham events, can be moments at which 
just by focusing people's attention on that question could lead to some coming together of tensions. So um, again, I wouldn't want to predict that, that kind of Putin's regime is going to fall then, but I would say if I were a betting person, um, I would probably place my money on, um, on an event like that happening around that time more than any other time. You have heard an episode of the World Stage podcast with me, Tora Bergen-Aterstad, and Professor Henry Hale. This podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, NUPI, is produced in cooperation with the Norwegian-Russia network. Norwegian speakers who are interested in learning more about the network can do that and sign up to a monthly newsletter on our websites. Thank you for listening and thanks to you, Henry, for sharing your insights. Thank you, Tara.